But now, how is it we hear each of us in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, each in our own languages, we hear them speaking in our languages. This is an amazing thing about God's deeds and power that they're talking about. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, "Ah, they're filled with new wine. Brothers and sisters, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Perhaps you were a little bit like me growing up, those of us that that grew up in church. At least in my hometown, Signal Mountain, Tennessee, this was not a passage we were comfortable with. We didn't know what to do with the whole speaking in tongues thing. We weren't sure that this was safe territory. We were Baptists, of course, and the idea of Other languages, especially where I grew up, Signal Mountain, Tennessee, we weren't quite sure what to do with that. This was a troubling passage, and we never talked about it. Sadly, many of us come from that experience of missing out on one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament and Old Testament. And what happens in this passage is remarkable. It's a testimonial to what we call the birthday of the church. There is something going on in this fellowship in Jerusalem of people who, by the way, look and sound an awful lot like you and me. Because what was happening in Jerusalem, like in other places in the Mediterranean world, Regular folks were trying to figure out how do you deal with a new and confusing world where there is an increasingly globalized economy? The Roman Empire was a very sophisticated bureaucratic system that also had commercial overtones that were remarkable. There was all kinds of possibility for new wealth and for going out of business. There were new opportunities, and there was a new possibility of failure. Life was much more complicated for the average person. And along with the globalized economy that was happening in this time of Jesus and this early church, there was also an increased diversity where people were beginning to live near other people who weren't like them didn't sound like them, didn't look like them. They grew up differently, had different worldviews, had a different perspective on faith, and it was also very confusing. If that time sounds familiar, there is an amazing parallel for that day and this day. 
the repercussions of our globalizing economy, the repercussions of our increased diversity, and trying to figure out how does this work? It is an amazing testimonial in the second chapter of Acts, where the author Luke moves us gently and importantly through some very amazing material. Luke is also intentional in making some connections for us. There's an expectation here that we are familiar with our Hebrew scriptures. We're supposed to know what's going on and pick up on some clues that Luke is leaving for us throughout the text. The first one starts with this simple understanding of the Spirit. There is a wind, Luke says, blowing across this fellowship of believers. The word in the New Testament, just like the word in the Old Testament, pneuma in Greek in the New Testament, ruach in Hebrew in the Old Testament, meant exactly the same thing and had three pieces to it. It could mean wind, it could mean breath, and it could mean spirit. And in the case of the second chapter of Acts, and in the case of the first chapter of Genesis, it means all three. There is in this connectedness that Luke is beginning to make to Genesis and the movement of the spirit, another very important connecting point, and that is the fire. So we have the spirit, and we have fire. Pentecost was an actual holiday, a celebration in the Jewish tradition that had very much to do with this harvest festival. In Jerusalem, just like here, there was the, the recognition that spring was in full swing. Things were growing and blooming, and this was a harvest festival because the first spring crops were now ready for harvest. In Decatur, we have this great opportunity and great advantage of being able to take advantage of farmer's markets, one of which meets, by the way, commercial, on our front lawn Saturday and Wednesday every single week, filled with farmers bringing their produce straight out of their gardens for us to enjoy. The springtime is a celebration of harvest, and the Pentecost was a harvest festival that recognized and lifted up the partnership with God that goes with understanding the fertility of the earth is intimately connected to the blessings of God through rain and sun and mystery of God's creative processes. So Pentecost was a harvest festival, but it also was a very important day and week to remember and give thanks for the coming of the Torah. It was a commemoration of Moses on Mount Sinai and God's gift of the Torah to the people of God coming out of 400 years of slavery, given over to the people now some boundaries and ordinances that the people now could have structure and coordination in learning how to live together in God's blessed community. So it was a harvest festival. It was also a commemoration of Torah and Moses. And Luke in Acts with this fire image expects us to know how was it Moses first got connected to his calling of God. It was through 
the fiery bush that was not consumed. The fire of God coming down, representing for the Jewish people a transformative moment, a moment of great potential, incredible possibility, and newness of spirit. It is not coincidental then that Luke in the second chapter of Acts brings these two powerful symbols from Genesis and Exodus, the spirit and the fire, and says in that fellowship of people who were confused and wondering what were they supposed to do, who were they, whose were they, in that moment the spirit and the fire came on that fellowship and suddenly there was transformation. It was an amazing moment. Now, Luke wants us to know something very particular. And he makes another connection, not just with Genesis 1 and Exodus with the fire and the spirit, but also a particular story from Genesis chapter 11. I have on the screen a picture of this great tower. Anybody recognize that? It's a photograph, of course, from... It's a likeness that people wonder... It's called the Tower of Babel, chapter 11 in Genesis. Now, why this is important, this in the beginning part of Genesis represents for, I'm sure, Luke and for early believers, the beginning of confusion among people. You remember what happens in this story. I remember as a little boy in Sunday school classes, Sunday school teachers saying, now there were this group, this group of people on the plain of Shinar, this is where it's located, which by the way, plain of Shinar was in Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. On the plain of Shinar, this group of people came together and they began to build a tower to the sky so they could be closer to God and worship together, right? How many of you heard that from Sunday school teachers? Maybe, maybe you as a Sunday school teacher have said this. So here's just a reminder, as Sunday school teachers and preachers, when sharing text, biblical text, with your class, it's always important to read the text. (laughs) Because that's not what the text says. The people gathered together on the plain of Shinar, and they said to one another, let us build a great city and a tower that goes to the sky so that... We can make a name for ourselves and will not be forgotten. Has nothing to do with worship. Has nothing to do with God. Has everything to do with pride and arrogance. And what happens on the plain of Shinar as a result of the Tower of Babel is these people suddenly become unable to listen to each other. They can no longer understand each other. Their languages get all mixed up. And we can imagine this is the beginnings of national differences, international confusion, boundaries, political divides, and people starting to say, I don't know who that is, but I can't understand what they're saying, and there must be something wrong with them. We are better than they are. Thankfully, that was just confined to the plain of Shinar in the 11th chapter of Genesis. Except there's another place. Some of you perhaps have been to Tuscany in the middle part of Italy, a little place called San Gimignano. And on San Gimignano, this little mountain, or in San Gimignano, there are these towers. This is called the Manhattan of Tuscany. Anybody been to 
San Gimignano, heard about San Gimignano before. Uh, in the 1300s, right at the beginning of the Renaissance, there was this fascinating moment in history where in Florence and Siena and Pisa, all three cities were becoming incredibly influential and very prosperous. And traders began to move in and through those three important cities, and they would go through San Gimignano. San Gimignano began to get very a lot of money and become very wealthy. And so the merchants in San Gimignano had all this extra cash. It was a walled city. There wasn't a lot of room to expand their homes, but they wanted to begin to display their wealth and newfound power. So they went up and they began to construct these towers for no apparent reason other than to show that they were better than, stronger than, more wealthy than their neighbors. But of course, their neighbors saw what was happening and they were also wealthy and guess what they wanted to do? 72 towers were constructed in little bitty San Gimignano because the merchants of San Gimignano couldn't stand the fact that their next door neighbor's tower was taller than theirs. Thankfully, this was confined only to San Gimignano except Atlanta, and New York, and Boston, and Washington, D.C., and the pride that goes with saying, my skyscraper is bigger than your skyscraper. Now, the Bible has something to say about this. In the 16th chapter of Proverbs, verse 5, here's what God says about this kind of attitude. All those who are arrogant, in fact, or an abomination to the Lord. Now, most of us would say, well, I'm not arrogant. I'm just kind of proud. Well, the Bible also has something to say about pride. And this is from 1618 in Proverbs. You've heard this before. We condense it. Pride goes before a fall. Actually, it's pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, this is problematic for us because many of us feel pretty good about ourselves or our neighborhoods or our cars or our churches or whatever it is we feel good about. And there's a balancing act, some tension between how this works and what Jesus warns us about and calls us to. Consistently, Jesus takes these verses very seriously and warns us about the dangers of pride and arrogance and talks consistently to us about the value and the importance of humility. A humble spirit is not weakness. In fact, it's a sense of strength and possibility and potential where as someone humble and trying to wrestle with a humility spirit of humility says God has made me in the image of God and God has made you in the image of God no matter where you're from or who you are we're in this together the spirit of humility in the midst of the tension now this is hard because there is the tendency and temptation to say I am so proud, I'm so humble. I am so thankful, I'm so spiritual. And I don't mean to be better than you, but I just can't help it, Lord. It's so hard to be humble 
when you're perfect in every way, (laughs) said Mac Davis in 1973 or thereabouts. This is the tension we live in, and this is the fascinating issue that Luke brings to the fore in the second chapter of Acts. What happens in this passage now with the background of the Tower of Babel in the 11th chapter of Genesis and the confusion of languages, the sad reality of people beginning to look at one another with suspicion and concern and even contempt, suddenly in the second chapter of Acts with the spirit moving and the fire burning, a transformation takes place. And all of a sudden now, this is not a miracle about speaking in languages. If you listen carefully, four different times in the scripture, the Bible says, and they were each surprised that they were hearing in the language of each. How is it that we can hear in our own native tongue? How is it that these simple people are proclaiming the good news of God in my language? The confusion and inability to hear and understand and listen to neighbors and others on the plain of Shinar gets transformed in the second chapter of Acts. And here's how Luke makes it very explicit. He gives this list that I read just a moment ago as the part of the scripture. And from the second chapter of Acts, Luke gives a geographical verbal map that starts in the east and goes to the west. And he says, in Elam, Parthia, in in, uh, the residence of Mesopotamia, and he moves from east to west. And it's very important. Remember I described the plain of Shinar. Where was it? Mesopotamia. Luke expects us to know our Bible and know the 11th chapter of Genesis in Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates River, the plain of Shinar, that's where it went wrong. Now in Jerusalem, in this room where people in their own confusion and struggling with a whole new globalized economy and this strange new diversity, suddenly this plain of Shinar and Tower of Babel has this remarkable reversal in the divine wind that blows through in the incredible energy of the fire of God, now all of a sudden people begin to understand each other because they can for the first time in a long time actually hear each other. They're listening to the stories from people from different places. Their eyes are being opened, their hearts are being melted. And it's no longer about languages of people, but the language of love and the potential of the heart to express and feel compassion for folks who are different than us. It's an amazing moment in the history of the church, and it's not the last time the church is going to struggle with diversity. I know that's surprising to you. It is the first time of many times that the church is going to go head-to-head with, how do we do this? What's the right way to proceed? Who is part of us and who's not part of us? And the whole trajectory of the book of Acts is about that struggle of trying to figure out what exactly is the Spirit doing in our midst? If you listen carefully as we move through the book of Acts over the coming weeks through our summer series, you will discover that this remarkable 
move through each of the chapters of Acts, almost every chapter, there's the wrestling with, how do we do this? How do we make this work? How do we understand each other more fully and better? And in each case, the people trying to figure it out are as prejudiced as you and me. They would not have started this. These people, like Peter and Paul, never would have initiated the open door of the church. But it's not Peter and Paul and the disciples and apostles doing it. Guess what? The day of Pentecost and the celebration and the reminder of what we're about, it's the Spirit of God moving among us in our hearts and our minds. It's not about us, but about what God is doing in us and through us and with us as channels of open hearts and open spirits and lives ready and willing to be used by God to heal the earth, to bring together the disparate parts of God's kingdom and to make all people feel someone cares. They are here and alive and can be used by God. Brothers and sisters from the second chapter of Acts, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.